HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Our show is being produced and engineered today by Jack Inslee and generously sponsored by 360 Degree Cookware. 360 Cookware is top-of-the-line stainless steel cookware that is made in America in the greenest cookware manufacturing facility in the country. It can be used to make all your favorite recipes, but also gives the option to cook using vapor technology, which creates a seal that surrounds food with intense heat, locking in vitamins, moisture, and flavor without added oil, fat, or excess water. Visit our website at 360cookware.com for more information. Um, So today I am very pleased to have on the show uh, Michael Anderson, who is an expert uh, in the realm of uh, affinage, a sort of nebulous and mysterious subject uh, to most, I feel like most people out there. Um, Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you. Um, so you spent the last, uh, the last couple of years working as the cave manager at Murray's cheese. I did. Yes. And how did you, um, you know, one does not go to school to become an affineur unless you live in France, maybe. So how did you make that, uh, make that leap? Well, it just kind of snowballed into it. Basically, uh, I, you know, you don't, like you said, you don't go to school for, for cheese aging in this country yet, at least. Um, yet. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully at <laughs> give, some give point. Give us a decade or two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I dropped out of music school uh, several years back and was, you know, working jobs at various places, uh, trying to find something that fit, and wound up at a, a pretty good gourmet store in my hometown in central Illinois that had a pretty decent cheese counter, so just got more and more into that as time went by, and uh, wound up moving out to New York to work on the counter at Murray's. Um, worked there for about three and a half years, uh, assistant manager store for a little while. Uh, my predecessor, Zoe Brickley, was working in the caves at Murray's, and she left to move up to the cellars at Jasper Hill. Um, so as soon as that position opened up, I was I, I jumped on it because that's really kind of where my interests lie is with the taking care of the products, um, not as much of the customer service, but uh, uh, I understand the, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the cheeses and the people who make them is, is what was most interesting to me, and that's a really great opportunity to to do a lot of that. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, um, what, uh, so when Zoe left, um, how did you, I don't know, how, what was your expectation of what affinage would entail? And, uh, did, did it sort of, what were the things that surprised you, I guess, about your new job? Well, I mean, it's kind of uh, continuous surprises every week is something new, but, um, I don't know. It was, um, it was, it's a really interesting side of the process to see because if you go to farms and see cheese makers you'll see like a little bit of that you'll see like the half dozen cheeses that they make uh kind of aging through their lives and if you go to a cheese store you see the, you know, the finished product in the case there but kind of between point a and point b uh there's kind of a lot that can that can go right and a lot can go wrong and that's um something a lot of people don't think about is is what can go wrong between the cheesemaker and the cheese store. Absolutely. Well, so I was thinking, yeah, what are sort of the most, what are your most important principles for um, aging cheeses properly and caring for them? Yeah, well, basically, unless you have a, a pretty sophisticated setup, you just want to minimize the amount of time that you're keeping cheese in refrigeration. You just want to sell it as soon as possible, basically. It's the, it's the best thing you can do. Right. Um, but it really depends on the style of cheese. I mean, that's that's especially true for like a fresh cheese. But something like uh, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, like a Parmesan, there's almost nothing you can do to that cheese to mess it up once it gets to this country. You mm-hmm. can keep it at 60 degrees. You can keep it at 32 degrees. You can keep it at any humidity level, and basically nothing's going to go wrong with that cheese. Um, and then everything in between. Um, and what kind of... So I guess, yeah, what... Um how many cheeses were you in charge of and and what were the different setups that you used to you know what were the what were the caves like how did you have them set up to sort of deal with these different kinds of cheese yeah well it got up to about i think over 300 different kinds of cheese wow. at one point yeah from from a lot of different places um what, so where, a lot to from where 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 would the cheeses come in from well i mean we're working in like european cheese tradition so like western europe and north america is mm-hmm. where 99% of the cheese we had was coming from um, France, United States, Italy, uh, England, Switzerland are the, the big ones, mm-hmm. um, Spain. Um, but yeah, we, we have over at Murray's, we had uh, half a dozen different spaces, different temperatures and humidity levels um, for all different styles of cheese. And it, it kind of runs in a narrow range. We're talking like between. 45 degrees and 55 degrees mm-hmm. uh, Fahrenheit and between about 85% and 95% humidity. So it's kind of a narrow band, but a lot can change in there and depends on the different styles, what you're going to keep where. Right. And so, well, th- it's interesting because, you know, we were just talking, I remember the other, the other day we mentioned that um, uh, some people think that uh, affinage, uh, the art of aging cheese, automatically makes a cheese better. Um, and there are some cheeses that will become better with careful, you know, attention and good affinage and some cheeses, which are just kind of made to, you know, be eaten at a certain stage and and that's it. So can you tell us about some of the cheeses that sort of you feel like benefited the most from? Yeah. Well, the way I always kind of describe it is that every cheese has kind of a bell curve of quality. Like time is on the bottom there and quality is on uh, the side of your graph uh, and as you go through time the cheese will improve and get better and it reaches a point where it's at its best and then over time it kind of falls off and gets worse <laughs> yeah um, but depending on what cheese you're talking about that window gets you know wider or narrower with mozzarella it's like a very short window mm-hmm. you're talking like a, a fresh cheese a very fresh cheese in yeah. a matter of days for that um 
but then something like a clock mount cheddar, you can age for, you know, 12, 18, 24 months mm -hmm. and it really starts to shine right about there. But then there is a point of diminishing returns where, um, that does kind of fall off. Um, and what were some of the cheeses that you feel like you like the styles of cheese that you were able to influence the most, um, during, yeah. you know, because there are certain cheeses, like you said, like a, a Parmesan that you can just leave in there forever and it's not really going to change that much. What was your experience with cheeses that you were able to change in a shorter period of time? Well, uh, the big one is like soft bloomy rinded cheeses, uh, because those rinds are so delicate, uh, they, they need a lot of care. And those are the ones we see the most problems with between the cheese maker and the cheese store. Right. It's, it's, it's an easy style to get into for a cheesemaker. It's a relatively forgiving sort of rind to grow, but once it's grown, a lot can go wrong with it, and then it falls off a lot quicker if it gets damaged uh, in transit. So that's one that was, is very beneficial to be able to age you know, from fresh to maturity. They put the rind on it at the store, basically, mm -hmm. uh, is... That was a great thing that we were able to do. And what uh, what kind of techniques would you use to sort of make sure that those rinds stayed, uh, you know, sort of in their best condition? Uh, well, letting them breathe is very important. If any of those mold rinds kind of stay wrapped up and stagnate, they're only going to suffer over time. The rinds are going to die and get, you know, slick and fall off the cheese. Uh, so letting them breathe was definitely important. And um, when you say letting them breathe, what kind of things would you do? You we'll would obviously them, unwrap them. Yeah, well, we were set up over at Murray's to keep cheese open to the air, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a big disconnect from a lot of other ways you'd be able to store cheese. Uh, like wrapped up in a refrigerator is kind of the alternative to that. And once you once you have it open to the air, then that kind of opens up a whole nother direction to you know, to take things in because you have to watch the temperature, you have to watch the humidity, you have to watch the air exchange. Um, a lot more things you have to be concerned about when you're actually kind of nurturing the growth of these cheeses as opposed to like keeping them as cold as possible, keeping them as arrested as possible. So that's kind of the difference between like refrigeration and, and aging, I guess. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, it's interesting. This is a really uh, sort of, I, th I feel a difficult thing for a lot of retailers. Um, and I've heard it from cheesemakers and from other retailers as well that, you know, it is it is hard to manage these these types of cheeses. So I feel like this show could almost be a little like 101 for retailers, like how to take care of your Bloomy Rind cheeses. You know, if, if we could just even talk for five minutes about that, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even something like instead of, you know, putting plastic wrap right on the rind of a cheese, maybe put it into a box. And if the box is wrapped and uh, you wrap the box in plastic, maybe, you know, poke some holes in it uh, to even allow some... Uh, gases to, to exchange that could that could benefit the creating cheese. a little terrarium yeah like sort of. exactly. <laughs> yeah that's the word I was looking for yeah uh, and when you say box do you mean a wooden box cardboard box wooden box cardboard is kind of uh, disgusting um, cardboard seems yeah. like you might get soggy yeah cardboard it might get soggy and you don't know where it's been uh, a lot of the times so I mean you want to use something clean to, to keep these things in um, right and even something as simple as like turning a cheese over if it's going to be sitting in a walk-in for more than a few days just flip it over onto its other side because you'll see things like kind of come out of the structure of the cheese and you get like a soggy bottom basically mm -hmm. and even just flipping it over once a week uh, makes a big difference for for something like that um, you, you know just thinking of something like humble fog even yeah um, which you see in various stages of of ripeness and or <laughs> over ripeness you know yeah, in, in retail yeah. stores throughout the country so absolutely 
Yeah, it's like you said, you know, you, you start out with the same product and, and then you, you know, it's your job to nurture it from the time it leaves the cheesemaker to the time it gets to the customer. Right. Yeah. And it's a, it's an important thing. A lot can go, a lot can go wrong there, but a lot can go right there. So it's just something to pay attention to, I think. Yeah. What other advice would you have for retailers in terms of how they receive and, and care for their cheese once they, once they, you know, once they have it in their stores? Well, you definitely want to keep an eye on how the quality is as soon as it gets to you because you want to know if something's gone wrong before you've gotten your hands on it absolutely um that's that's a a big a big point because if it's not your fault you don't want to have to you know eat the cost of that um and then you know uh, i would say i will just say that you want to kind of know what bad cheese is you're gonna have to you're gonna have to know when a cheese has gone bad um and it's gonna be a matter of tasting a lot of cheese and a lot of different stages of quality and how forgiving are you you know in terms of when a cheese comes in if it's been a little beat up in shipping like you know it could be that you know the cheese left the cheesemaker and it wasn't bad cheese and then it suffered a little bit but you know where do you sort of draw the line um with cheese that you know you receive that might not be in the best shape well it's i mean it's honestly rare that we get something that is unsaleable i would say like almost everything that is coming in is you know, usable, but, uh, when you want to use it is important. If there's, there are things that aren't going to last quite as long and you, even though that you've received them later, you might want to use them a little bit sooner. Uh, like if you have the back to the bloomy rinds, if the, if the rind is slipping off of a bloomy rind, it's not going to last much longer that it's, the rind is just going to detach a little bit more, get thicker and chewier and your cheese isn't going to ripen anymore. Um, so you want to sell that as fast as possible. Whereas if you've got something that might be a little bit older, but your rind's a little bit tighter on there, that'll hold up for, for another week and, and you can, yeah. That. But it's just a matter of keeping an eye on it and knowing what to do with these things. Yeah, it's funny. I feel I feel the same as you. Like I feel like very few cheeses are actually unsaleable, right. you know, and so you just kind of have to have to gauge and, and make make the best of it. Right. Yeah. And then in terms of like um unwrapping, rewrapping, you know, do you sort of think that once cheeses come in the retailer should unwrap them, inspect them and rewrap them to or should they just kind of I mean I definitely think so. If you're able to do that that makes a big difference because you know, number one it lets the cheese breathe is if you're unwrapping it then anything that's in there isn't stagnating and, mm-hmm. and getting weird um and number two if you're leaving a wheel of cheese wrapped up in plastic for a long time like a number of days or a couple of weeks th- that those plasticky flavors are going to seep into the cheese to some extent which you don't necessarily want so you know replacing that periodically is is always a good idea um and even using like wax paper to keep the plastic directly or off the direct surface of the cheese is is not a bad idea either Cool. Both for whole wheels and for cut pieces? Yeah, whole wheels and cut pieces. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah, one thing you don't really want to do is leave a whole wheel of a cheese unwrapped in a cold storage space because it's just going to dry out and crack and and go wrong in the other direction. Right. Absolutely. Well, it looks like it's it's about time for us to take a break, but um, when we come back, we're going to talk more about what's going on with affinage in the rest of the country and uh, stick with us on Cutting the Curd. One, two, one, two, keep it on. Listen to the shit because we keep it till dawn. Listen to the ass track, got it going on. Listen to the ladies, come on and let me spawn. On your eggs, then you go up the river. Listen to the ass jack, that freaky nigga. Now, I'm that rock and I shock and I tick and I talk and I can't stop with the body rush. See, I got caught like John Stars. He is mad squash. Pass me the bike and I'll be rocking the whole car. Oh, I'm the M to the C to the A. There's a horse. The rock. 
times that we boss on the top of the lust. <laughs> and my mouth is not blood, but fuck it. Let me get down to the rhythm. Yes, I get funky and I shoot it on my chism like John Bones. The X-rated nigga. Listen to the shit, cause I am the ill figure. Nobody's getting any bigger than this. Phone is ringing. Oh my god. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Monday at 2 p.m., Snacky Tunes hosts some of today's most cutting edge musicians and DJs. And while the requisite live radio fair is usually presented as a song here, a DJ set there, hosts Finger on the Pulse also talk food, sustainability, and green issues with their esteemed food guests. Snacky Tunes is routinely radio perfection for the music or food enthusiast. Again, that's every Monday at 2 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. All right, we are back for our second segment on Cutting the Curd. Um, I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Our show today has been sponsored by 360 Cookware. Uh, Check out more about their products at their website, 360cookware.com. Um, and my guest today is Michael Anderson, who is a, a cave uh, a cave manager slash affineur and uh, is an expert on aging cheeses. Um, so, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about your experience working in the caves at Murray's Cheese, and they're certainly influencing, um, you know, sort of the, the cheese industry, um, bringing in cheeses, making sure that they're cared for correctly before they're sent out to the end consumer. Um, but there are a couple of other people doing this work um, more at the farm level, uh, specifically the sellers of Jasper Hill and uh, Willie Leaner, who has Bluemont Dairy in uh, Madison or outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so, Mike, you've been up to the sellers at Jasper Hill. Um, and uh, yeah, what do you think about, uh, I don't know, their affinage uh, techniques and what's going on up there? Yeah, well, they've got like a very ambitious project that I know a lot of us are familiar with, but it's, you know, 20,000 some square feet of cave space on their farm property, which is huge. It's a really big undertaking, but it's kind of based on a French model of like consolidated affinage. They're trying to remove some of the workload from farmstead cheesemakers in terms of, you know, aging product, holding on to all that inventory and then uh, marketing and distributing it. So it really just makes sense from from that standpoint to consolidate all of that stuff and then they've they've got national distribution at this point seeing vermont farmstead cheese all across the country I mean, from new york to chicago to san francisco it's kind of incredible uh that they've been able to do that um and the idea is as far as i understand it is to to not only take the workload off of the farmstead cheese makers but have a dialogue back and forth back and forth uh with them to you know improve the products and um you know, kind of working synergistically in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Abs- really interesting. Absolutely. And, um, and they, you know, they're aging a bunch of different kinds of cheeses. Mm. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the caves are set up and, you yeah, know? well the, the big one, kind of the, the showstopper is the Cabot cave. It's, uh, something like, I don't know, 50 foot ceilings. It's really massive. Uh, but the entire thing is just full of Cabot cloth bound cheddar. You start at one end of the room. It's the stuff they've just received and wrapped, um, you know, recently, and then you go all the way around to the extra age. They've got uh, up to, you know, 18 months uh, sometimes, some extra age cheese. Just one massive room 
full of one kind of cheese uh, is is kind of stunning to see. Um, and what's it like in there? What does it smell like? What is it? You well, never smelled the rind of a cloth bound cheddar. It has like a very kind of musty, basementy, celery type aroma to it. And if you just imagine that, kind of intensified by a hundred times, um, it's almost overpowering, uh, but, but really neat to see. Um, and what kind of work do they do in there to ensure that those cheddars are sort of moving along the way that they that they want them to? Well, a few things. They're they're testing them all the time, tasting them all the time, making sure that the the flavor is developing the way uh, that they should be. And that's kind of a unique skill that that a, a true affineur needs to have too, is knowing what a young cheese should taste like before it's ready to go, and to make sure. And they're selecting batches that they're going to be selling. Young and they're selecting batches. They're going to be selling extra aged. Uh, so knowing what like a, a green cheese tastes like before it's ripened is a pretty specialized kind of tasting skill that, that mm-hmm. you need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they're you know plugging those wheels, taking samples of those pretty regularly, um, and basically flipping the cheeses over and. Uh, brushing the mite dust off of them is a big one too. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about cheese mites for a second. Sure, I mean, that's a that's a, a thing that a, a beast that an affineur has to contend with that yeah. most people don't. Yeah, and there's no beating around the bush. They're teeny tiny bugs uh, that eat away at the rinds of cheeses, um, and they're totally expected for you know a number of different styles of cheese. Kind of mimolette is one of the big examples of that. Uh, cheese from Flanders looks like a little cannonball, um, <laughs> with a, like a pockmarked rind that's just been eaten away at by all these teeny tiny cheese mites look like little asteroids or something yeah, right. uh, fall into earth <laughs> exactly. um, but that's you know totally expected for a cheese like that um, and cloth bound cheeses are the other kind of big culprit for the cheese mites um, what they do is they they're just supposed to kind of work at the surface of the cheese and in combination with all the dried cheese that's on the surface uh, and any molds that grow during the aging process uh, creates like a protective layer on the outside so the cheese can age for months and years um, they don't they shouldn't really affect the flavor of the cheese at all they shouldn't get into the cheese itself but they will definitely have an aroma that might have a very distinctive uh, aroma and different mites kind of smell differently so it's going to affect the way you taste the cheese, uh, but you're not really gonna. You're not eating bugs or anything. I don't want to <laughs> give that impression. Uh, but you're gonna you're gonna smell it, and it's almost like, it, in some cases, it's like a like a potpourri or like a lavendery sort of aroma, which is really interesting. So weird, yeah. I've encountered that, and yeah. it's just like it's a bizarre. Yeah, aroma that you would never that you would never associate with <laughs> right. with tiny microscopic things. <laughs> yeah, but they're. Uh, the, I guess the, the French call them petites affineurs, the, the little, <laughs> little affineurs. <laughs> the ones you don't have to pay. No. <laughs> exactly. yeah, they're happy. We're happy. Absolutely. All right. So mites on, you know, sort of aged cheeses. And then I know at Jasper Hill, they also have a cave that's dedicated to wash rind cheeses. Yeah, um, can you talk to us about, I don't know, what the, how that care differs from the care of uh, aged cheeses? Yeah. Well, uh, a wash rind is another example of a surface ripened cheese. You've got something growing on the outside, but it's actively transforming the cheese from the outside in. Uh, in the case of wash rinds, it's a bacterial culture. And to encourage that, uh, the cultures are, are added to the rind, but they're also continually washed in in brine or or some sort of liquid uh, to keep it moist and to keep the bacteria happy and growing um so those that's a a much more labor intensive well i don't know much more labor intensive but equally labor intensive uh, proposition is washing all of those cheeses a couple of times a week flipping them over um keeping those rinds developing yeah and if you don't wash them what starts to happen well if you don't wash them a few things happen first of all they'll dry out and Mm. and 
the rinds will harden and darken uh, and turn into kind of a different thing. Because if you think of something like Gruyere, the, the rind on a Gruyere has been washed, but also been allowed to harden because that's just serving to protect the cheese. It's not ripening the cheese or anything. Uh, but a washed rind, something like a, a, a Telegio or like Meadow Creek Grayson is washed. You want to keep that rind like bright orange and vibrant and ripening the cheese from the outside in. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so Jasper Hill, they do the, they do the cheddar, they mm. do the washed rinds. Um, they have other cheeses in the caves as well. Um, how are those cheeses cared for? Uh, well, there are things like the, the bloomy rinds, uh, which are trying, again, surface ripened cheese, but you're growing mold on the outside of that. Um, but you want to control that so it doesn't turn into like some kind of thick and chewy layer of mold on the outside. You're trying to develop a nice, tight uh, rind that's adhering to the surface of the cheese, but also releasing its enzymes and ripening the cheese and softening the cheese over time. I think, uh, yeah, we've all had that experience where you eat a cheese that's like, yeah, a leathery kind of thick yeah, rind. Yeah, it's just and like then, chewy and unpleasant. And yeah. that's really not what you're looking for. You just want like a really delicate, thin, papery rind on the outside. And achieving that is hard. Uh, you got to pat the molds down and flip those cheeses over um, on a pretty regular basis. Okay. Yeah. I always think, yeah, it's almost like being a gardener or something, you know, you just kind of have to go out every day and it is. Yeah. You got to take a look at you know how things are developing and what you need to do to make sure they're, they're going the right way. Yeah. Um, and so what about Willie leaner? Uh, what about what's going on with his, uh, cheese caves over well, in Wisconsin? He's got, he's working in kind of more of a, a Swiss model. Like he doesn't have his own animals. He doesn't have his own cheese making equipment. What he does have is a cave that he built on his property, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, but he uses milk and, and he uses cheese making facilities of other cheesemakers in, in southern Wisconsin, of which there are plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then he makes the cheese and brings it back to his cave and ages it there. Um, so he actually makes it all offsite. He makes it all, yeah, offsite. From different, many different facilities. Many different facilities, many different milks, uh, which takes a lot of skill, obviously, to be able to deal with something that's even that variable. But uh, then aging them all himself. He's more like a cheese mercenary, like going out there and just uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, making making these uh, fantastic cheeses <laughs> killing killing them left <laughs> exactly. and right taking yeah, taking them. this milk just just turn it into good cheese exactly <laughs> um but yeah that's that's a really interesting thing that he's got there i don't know anyone else who's doing what he is yeah that's amazing he's like a roving he's like a johnny appleseed of of cheese from yeah, his little is. area yeah and uh i uh, was at acs last year and just seeing the amount of cheeses that he had entered in the competition was pretty incredible too and they're all fantastic what are the ranges what what does he do what are the- uh, well he does a, a little cloth bound cheddar which is super fantastic um he does uh washed rinds um he does like alpine style cheeses okay uh, so kind of runs the gamut wow mostly mostly harder slightly longer age cheeses that's well i i think i remember him telling me once that he was of swiss uh, or his family was Swiss. And so he has kind of this like, yeah, deep history of sure. with the dairy and sure. stuff like that. So he's, he's kind of hardwired to make at least, you know, that style of cheese, but to expand to many different styles is pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I've always thought is interesting is that, uh, it's blue Mont dairy in blue mounds, Wisconsin. Um, ah, okay. So it's, it's got a, it's a Swiss guy with a French name making English style cheeses. in Wisconsin. <laughs> it's one of those it's kind of perfect, only in America. Yeah. Perfect American <laughs> immigrant story. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, 
how about anybody else? Is there anybody else who's doing really groundbreaking affinage work in the United States, be it a cheesemaker or an independent affineur? Um, in the States, those are the, those are the big ones I can think of. I mean, every cheesemaker is aging their cheese, basically. Um, you have to, for it to, uh, to be what it is, but, um, and do you anticipate, I mean, because in Europe, like you said, this is pretty, it's, it's much more commonplace. It's like a, it's a more well-developed industry. Can you see there becoming, you know, a, a sort of profitable business opportunity for people who want to get into the game of well, aging I think cheese? There, yeah, I think there absolutely could be. And Jasper Hill is definitely the model for that. Um, and seeing how that develops over the next five, ten years is going to be really interesting for all of us. Um, but definitely, and if you were to say the same thing about French affinage. I mean, affinage is obviously a French word, so uh, they've got a little bit more of a history of that. And there's half a dozen uh, French affineurs that are exporting cheese to the United States, and you know, innumerable more over there. Like almost every cheese shop has their own affinage program uh, to some extent over there. Um, so you know, twenty years from now, who knows in, in the states what it's going to look like? But right now, it's uh, kind of a small list of people who are, you know, aging cheese in in that sort of way. Yeah, yeah. And for yourself, what do you think about, um, I mean, you were a music person before you got into, before you got into cheese. Um, do you see yourself, you know, what are, what are the harmonies there? No pun intended. Um, are you interested in more of like the actual like sciencey, like microbiology part? Um, or is it more of like a, an artistic practice that you think, you well, know? And yeah, it's, it's, I kind of come at it with a very analytic and scientific mindset. Which is strange because there's a lot of things that we're still trying to figure out. And when it comes to the actual work, it's much more visceral and hands-on and, I guess, artistic, you would say. Uh, and But there's all these microbes, there's all these molds and yeast and bacteria, what their pH tolerances and salt tolerances and uh, water activity, all these things, all these very sciencey things. But it's really only the last 50, maybe 100 years that anyone's known anything at all about that. And then for the centuries of cheesemaking leading up to that, it's all been you know, kind of oral tradition handed down, like, this is what this cave should smell like, this is what this cheese should look like. It's Based a, on intuition Yeah, and, much and more experience. intuitive, much more visceral, uh, much less analytical. And it's interesting, because music, to me, is totally a combination of those two things as yeah, well. Yeah, it absolutely is, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of technical knowledge that needs to go into it, but if there's no soul behind it, then it's not going to be anything anyone wants to listen to. <laughs> anything wants, anyone wants to eat in the case of cheese. Yeah, absolutely. The cheese has to be tuned to the <laughs> harmony of the, uh, of the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> that was getting a little bit out there, but, <laughs> but we can dork out about stuff like that. We're, we're, yeah, we're cheese people. And that's why we do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today and share your experience of affinage and, and, um, expertise and, ripening cheeses thanks a lot for having me and uh we will see you next sunday on another episode of cutting the curd thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows you can also podcast all of our programs on itunes by searching heritage radio network in the itunes store You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.